Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, we uh, have a wonderful opportunity today to talk to uh, our listeners about a very important topic. Uh, today is episode number 14. It is the rapture. Today we're going to address uh, this topic called the rapture. It is a topic that is often disputed and debated among Christians. It is an in-house kind of uh, dispute. That is, uh, unbelievers really cannot enter into this kind of discussion. So it is basically oriented to the Christian. Two big uh, questions arise when we talk about the rapture, so it seems to me. And that is the question, first of all, what is the rapture? And secondly, when does it occur? And it is the second question that is perhaps debated uh, more than the first one significantly. You know, it is a subject uh, that is uh, talked about in different ways. And recently I heard someone uh, say, or read it anyway, that he doesn't believe in the rapture. And this is a Christian friend. Well, you know, uh, I don't think that's really what he meant to say, because it is clearly taught in the New Testament strongly in two places, which we'll talk about. Uh, I think he really meant to say, I don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. I know that this individual has become more and more uh, persuaded by reform theology, and Reformation theology never did embrace the kind of rapture we're going to talk about today that you and I, John, hold uh, common with uh, ourselves between us. But anyway, we're talking about the rapture what it is, and when does it occur. So we all believers have to believe in the rapture. It's simply a question of when does it occur, and that is what is uh, significantly divided or debated among Christians today. When we use the term rapture, I understand, as I recall, that the word rapture comes out of a Latin term that is used to translate a word in First Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 17, most translations today use that word in the Greek text and translated shall be uh, uh, gathered away uh, and so forth. Uh, so the rapture, in a sense, is, is a word imposed upon the text from the Latin when we should use either the Greek word or the English translation adequately. Jim? So it is. It is that topic that we want to address today, and we're going to uh, answer the questions, what is it and when does it occur, by first of all reading the two passages that uh, this doctrine of the church, doctrine of Christian believers, is taught. And it occurs uh, clearly in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following. And uh, John, I, I'd like you to read that for us today, and then I'll read the second passage from First Corinthians 15. All right, I have it open here in my trusty New American Standard, which kind of is becoming a dated translation, but I'm, I am so used to it and so familiar with it, and not to mention the fact that my pages turn very easily in this particular Bible. Yes. So I, I will pick up in First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 through the end of the chapter where Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest, who have no hope. 
Well, that's there's 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 enough to unpack in just that verse alone. But let me continue. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And there is that, uh, that particular word, which in Latin would be rapio, uh, the verb, but in uh, Greek is harpazo, which means to snatch or to take away quickly. And we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. And then, of course, God does nothing without purpose. And here it is in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And the saints, uh, this is part of that great expectation and that great hope that we have for our future because of our trust in Christ as Savior. Yes, let's talk about some of the terms in this passage you just read, going back to verse 13. And we will return to uh, the purpose or uh, uh, design that God has for these verses, why he, the Spirit of God, led Paul to write these words as he did. We'll say more about that when we come to the First Corinthians passage. Uh, but we notice in verse 13 that his desire is not to leave the believers uninformed about those believers who had already died, as though I think it Paul is trying to say as though somehow living Christians felt that their uh, dead ones, the ones who had pre preceded them in death, were going to come up short in some way regarding their future destiny with Christ in heaven. And Paul says that he did not want them to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And boy, we're going to return to that idea at the very end because Christians above all other people on earth have hope. It's a hope that takes us through present stress and trials, such as the pandemic all the world is facing today and especially in America and the economic challenges that go with it. And what the future holds regarding these matters, none of us really know, but we do have hope. And Paul says, this is how we have hope. And he goes on then to describe the resurrection of believers, but first those who have died in Christ are going to be raised, and they're going to be uh, brought along with Jesus uh, at this time, at this event. And so Paul says he's speaking by the authority of Jesus Christ himself, according to the Lord's word, that uh, all of us will be uh, uh, caught up to meet Christ in the air as he returns for his people at that point. Uh, so Jesus returns from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. So they have special privilege in being raised first. And then we who are alive will be instantly changed into glorified bodies, resurrected as it is, and be uh, caught up together with the others who have died and now being resurrected, caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So powerful, powerful words. Um, 
Any other comments about this particular passage, John? No, it's just that I was thinking uh, all of a sudden of, of uh, the preliminaries. You know how God throughout history has, has provided, uh, I like your favorite A word, adumbration, really. In other words, previews of coming attractions. Uh, and I and I can think of uh, a couple of them uh, that will arise in the minds of uh, the other saints who are listening. Uh, first is Enoch, uh, who all of a sudden uh, no longer walked on the earth because God had taken him. And of course, we look back at Elijah uh, and, and that great story of uh, God coming to remove him without dying from the face of the earth. And then, of course, uh, though he died before, the rapture is always, uh, uh, because it uh, has to do with a resurrection, first of all, of the dead, those who would precede those who are alive, but in, 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 a, in a special way also, even those who are alive uh, receive glorified bodies, even as Jesus' body uh, when it was raised uh, from the dead and he rose into heaven was of a different nature in some sense uh, than uh, when he was here. I think that is probably fair to say. Help me out with that if I've made a little error in oversight. No, I think not. And I think that uh, you pointed two great examples from the Older Testament that are adumbrations or, or glimpses of what the resurrection of the saints will be at near the end of the age. Uh, and this is again, a tremendous encouragement to believers living today. Uh, there are people no doubt who say, oh, how could a resurrection like this take place? What, what are the uh, uh, avenues or the uh, mechanics involved and so forth and so forth? Well, we simply need to be reminded that God has done something like this in the past where people actually went from this existence into an eternal existence without dying. Uh, what we're talking about right now is a little bit different because some people have died. They will be resurrected, taken out of the grave. But we who are alive and remain until that moment will be transferred immediately from our present physical existence into an immortal existence. So that leads me to uh, read the passage from 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul in this chapter is totally devoted to explaining the idea of the resurrection. I read an article recently in which a Christian so-called uh, testified to the fact that he had a spiritual experience, very intellectual man, uh, but when challenged about uh, his idea that we have to pay attention to reason also, uh, it came out that he said he didn't know for sure or really could believe that Jesus was alive, uh, actually having been resurrected and is alive today. And that, of course, is the touchstone of Christian belief. Because Paul starts 1 Corinthians 15 by talking about what the gospel is, that it involves recognition of the resurrection of Christ. And he gives several proofs and defenses of the resurrection of Christ. And basically uh, ends up with a powerful argument basically saying that if Christ be not raised, then we will not be uh, raised, and we have no hope. We've been preaching a gospel that is false, and uh, we've been, uh, we are not to be trusted with anything we say. So everything in Christian belief today hinges on the reality, the truth, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So at the end of this chapter, after giving many uh, uh, arguments about the resurrection and when it occurs, uh, comes down near the end of the chapter and talks about uh, the future resurrection awaiting uh, all believers. And I want to pick up his uh, dialogue then, or his narrative, in verse 50. This is a long chapter, and we can be grateful for such a long uh, discourse on the significance of the resurrection for believers. Verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul is saying that... Uh, the future life, which is imperishable and immortal, uh, cannot be um, automatically adopted and, and entered into by our present mortal and uh, perishable bodies. Something has to happen. So verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. And John, I need to pause here and say this word mystery, which I discovered over the last year of study and so forth in my book, goes all the way back to Daniel. And uh, is a concept that Daniel originates, the only person in the Old Testament to address this. And Paul is saying there's another aspect to Daniel's concept of mystery, which is only found in a very uh, slight way. And Daniel is now more fully explained here. And Paul is no doubt claiming a divine inspiration again. I tell you a mystery, he says. We will not all sleep. This is a uh, Christian code word for dying. Uh, found not only here, but also in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. We will not all sleep, Paul says. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. Well, how will that happen? Verse 52. In a flash. How quick? In the twinkling of an eye. I just twinkled my eye several times in reading these words. That's how quick it is going to happen. I saw that, Jim. What's that? <laughs> I saw that. Okay. Uh, so in a flash, in the mo in the twinkling of an eye, uh, other versions say in the in a in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And that's what we read in the other passage in First Thessalonians four, that the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then Paul goes on and says, but we will, uh, uh, and we will be changed. So we, the living, will be changed as well as those who have died in Christ. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So Paul appeals to this figure of speech of clothing, like taking our present body as a tent or a dwelling place in which we live. We're going to take it off and we're going to put on a new garment, a garment that is immortal. So Paul goes on, Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Referring to an Old Testament passage found in uh, the book of Hosea and Isaiah as well. Isaiah 25 and now Hosea 13. So Paul quotes this passage. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But those things have been conquered by Jesus Christ, I'm inserting here. And Paul says this, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because of Christ's resurrection, his victory over death, we participate in his victory over death by ourselves being resurrected and no longer constrained by death or the perishable or the mortal. Just think of it. We're going to become immortal 
you know, one of the great uh, desires of mankind and wish wishes, I think, of mankind is to somehow live forever. And yet they uh, skirt around the only means by which that can take place. And some people even want to freeze their bodies, hoping for someday in the future when it can be unfrozen and somehow they'll live in a different capacity or way. But here's the only way to immortality, and it is to be identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what happens when a person believes the gospel. So he concludes, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, and this is the word that stands true for not only you and me, uh, John, but for all our listeners, let nothing move you, nothing disturb you. And in the midst of this pandemic, what a powerful word. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, Paul says, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Again, a great encouragement today, all kinds of people striving in different ways to work to do something to somehow relieve their uh, anxieties and fears and doubts and uh, all else that goes with that. And the answer to finding that is to claim the victory that we have in Jesus Christ and the promise of resurrection. Well, what powerful passages. So, John, we're answering two questions during this time together. And one is, what is it? And we basically covered that question uh, from these two great scripture passages. And the other important point is, when is it? Because here, all of a sudden, we realize that even though this doctrine is taught in Scripture in not only these two places, but hinted at in others, but uh, uh, the question comes down to, where is the place of the rapture in the timeline of the fulfillment of the time of the end? And there are three views that stand out. All of these views are trying to address how does the rapture relate to the time of the tribulation? Now, in previous podcasts or episodes of our podcast, uh, we've dealt with the tribulation period, and that is that seven-year period prophesied in the book of Daniel, in the middle of which the Antichrist betrays himself as the great deceiver, uh, the great uh, oppressor of Israel and Christian, and takes over uh, world dominion and control. And in the middle of that seven-year period, uh, does this terrible work of the abomination of desolation. He desecrates God's holy temple by setting himself up as God in the temple. So the great tribulation is this seven-year period. So the question regarding the rapture and the word that we just read from 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is this. When does the rapture occur? Is it before the great tribulation unfolds? That is, before the seven years? Is it in the middle of the tribulation when the, we could say, the tribulation gets particularly fierce and difficult and God's wrath is poured out in special measure in the middle of that seven-year period? Or does it occur at the end, after the tribulation, and then just immediately before Jesus comes back to earth in power and glory with saints and angels, uh, defeats the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon and goes on to reign on earth? So those are the three views, pre, mid, or post-tribulation. Now, the history of this doctrine, basically in, in a short form, would simply say this. Uh, this doctrine was basically not addressed by the reformers, as they readdressed all kinds of important issues about 
the meaning of our atonement and redemption and faith versus work and all of that. And so it is basically the doctrine of the Reformed churches that it is the post-tribulation viewpoint. That is, uh, just, just immediately before Jesus comes to reign, uh, well, be, before he comes to establish the new heavens and new earth, because uh, the Reformed church, uh, which is basically amillennial and denies the millennial reign of Jesus on earth, uh, would say that the next great event is at the end of history, uh, the rapture occurs immediately before Jesus returns and establishes the new heavens and new earth. There is no rain on earth. In fact, there is no great tribulation of seven years. There is no antichrist and on and on it goes. Therefore, uh, that church takes the view that that position, the uh, reformed church and, and amillennialists take the view that the uh, rapture occurs right at the end of the seven years, although there aren't really seven years. It occurred at the end of this age. Uh, Mid-tribulationists are fewer in number. And then uh, you and I, John, count ourselves among the pre-tribulationists. That is, we believe that Jesus is going to come just as the seven-year period of great tribulation begins. And it is the intent of God to deliver his people, those who are professing Christians, and those who have died and are in the grave, raising them, so that uh, that seven-year period begins and Christians have been taken to heaven before that occurs. Let me say something else about this doctrine. Uh, what we're talking about today is an in-house Christian dispute. It means that Christians can differ and have three different positions uh, on the uh, rapture of the church, and it doesn't mean that any one of the three views is less Christian than the other. It is a matter of interpreting the Bible and to understand carefully what the words mean in these two passages and several others. So we should not go around uh, faulting uh, other believers who differ from us on our view as though they are less Christian or not Christian and so forth. In essence, we're trying to say we cannot be dogmatic on this point because it is not absolutely clear beyond a shadow of a doubt as to when the rapture occurs. So we respect those who have a differing view from us. You know, John, as we think of this doctrine, uh, those who hold a post-trib view often fault the pre-trib view as being late in time as only being more fully articulated and appreciated within the last 200 years. They say, therefore, at least by deduction, that this is a new doctrine of the church, that therefore uh, that discredits it from the outset. But I'm reminded of what Daniel says in chapter 12 in his book, and as uh, illustrated elsewhere in the New Testament, that knowledge of the end time events is going to increase. That is, as we draw closer to the end of the age, various events and an understanding of scripture will coalesce closer together so that the future looks more clear than it did say a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, and certainly more than 2000 years ago. Daniel knew little about this event of the rapture uh, Jesus does not mention it, and we'll return to that fact, too, in just a minute. Uh, but Paul does mention this doctrine, 
And so the question of when it occurs is disputed, but nonetheless, the fact that it is an event cannot be refuted or denied by a Christian. John, would you like to contribute here at this point? No, I, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, although it's uh, kind of one-sided. It's very good. So I'm just sitting nice and, nice and tight and tidy here. All right. Well, let me talk about Jesus uh, and what he says in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus is answering the question at the beginning of chapter 24, verse 3, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's clear that they're talking about two aspects of one event. When they say the sign, they mean there is one sign, but it has two aspects, the sign of your coming and the end of the age. The end of the age and the sign of his and, and his coming, his second coming to in power and glory, as he himself describes it in later verses, are one and the same great event. So his coming and power and glory happen at the end of the age. That is the question that Jesus then answers, beginning in verses three and following. And he gets to the middle point of the tribulation period in verse 15. Well, let me back up and say this for a moment. In verse 14, he has said, the end is not yet, it, it, the end is not yet, all these things have to transpire, including pandemics, wars, earthquakes, and so forth, and yet the end is not here. And then he says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom must first be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. And so that gospel is going out in all the world today as never before. And so we get to verse 15, and Jesus says, then when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the place where it ought not to be, take heed, understand and take heed. So Jesus is saying, all of a sudden, revelation from Daniel and elsewhere will become far more clear as this event unfolds in history. And we're at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years from the beginning. And Jesus goes on to describe that as an age of a time of great deceit. Uh, the Antichrist will gain a large following, worldwide following, uh, people will uh, think that he appears there and he's not there and that is, Jesus is not there and Jesus is not over here. Uh, but the Antichrist will claim to be a fulfillment of all the uh, prophecies of the Bible and all the hopes of mankind. He will bring in a, uh, a false peace, I think we can say, and the whole world will be attracted to, the, to him. He will be the person who will answer the pandemics of the time. He will be the person who will bring all the nations to a peace table, and then he will claim to be the world ruler that all should adhere to. He'll do miracles that confirm his claims, and all the world will lavishly give their attention to him. And in turn, he will put to death anyone who doesn't uh, want to worship him, and that includes Christians and Jewish people in particular. And then he will exert uh, death over them, and the false prophet will come alongside and and uh, cause miracles to happen on behalf of the Antichrist. So it seems like there is no one and nothing that can withstand and stop him. But all of a sudden, as he gathers the armies at Armageddon to oppose uh, Israel, Jesus Christ returns in power and in glory. All of this is found there in Matthew 24. So the question arises, why is it that Jesus doesn't address the rapture? He says nothing about it there. Well, I've already stated the answer. The answer is that he is not dealing with the rapture. He's not giving a full outline of all the events that are going to take place in the future. He's dealing with the disciples' question. 
what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The rapture occurs before that. So it isn't uh, that we should expect that we would find the answer uh, from Jesus in uh, Matthew 24. But as we've already mentioned, uh, Paul the Apostle gives us plenty of material in regards to the rapture. And we read those passages from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. You know, another thing we might point out, John, is that when we read 1 Thessalonians 4 to the very end of the chapter, the next words that come out of Paul's pen are those of what we now call chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read that verse. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying peace and safety... Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And he goes on, as Paul the Apostle, to write further about what that day will look like. But I want to point out to our listeners that we're talking about a new change of topic. Pardon me. Uh, because the words of verse 1 talk about, uh, Paul is basically saying this, now concerning uh, times and seasons. And that's a phrase, the, the, the phrase concerning, that Paul uses in his epistles here in Thessalonians and in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere to address topics. And it's clear that we're making a transition from verse 18 of chapter 4 to chapter 5 of verse 1 and talking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment for the world, when uh, God is going to be dealing with people as we have it described in regard to the great tribulation. So this is tribulation kind of language. And it is not rapture kind of language as we begin chapter five. I think that's a point that you wanted to make as well. Is it not, John? Well, I think, yes, it's very obvious that there is a change. You have, you have the, and, and frankly, it has to do with the timing. If you consider these uh, things in Paul's mind as consecutive for in chapter four, we would have the rapture. And then in chapter five, those uh, things regarding uh, what uh, occurs in the great tribulation. And he speaks about it in verse nine, particularly as the wrath to come. Now, you know, John, you and I have dealt with this question before in discussions, maybe reaching back as far as a year ago at our favorite place of meeting, uh, McDonald's in, in Damascus. And that is the question of the nature of the resurrection body and we're not going to talk about that here. Uh, but the other issue of uh, the accusation that is often leveled against those who believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, as though we are simply believing in that in order to escape persecution and suffering. But <laughs> you and I decided and talked about this uh, over many uh, lunch times that uh, no believer living today or in the past could ever say, well, I'm believing in the rapture, so I don't have to go through suffering and tribulation. Uh, in fact, it's right here in 1 Corinthians, uh, pardon me, 1 Thessalonians, that Paul uh, commends the Thessalonian believers that they've been steadfast in the midst of great persecution and suffering. And throughout church history, the church has undergone great persecution and suffering. And it is fair to say today that more Christians have been martyred in the 20th century than in the entire history of church uh, times from uh, the time of the apostles up until now. So this is not an escape from persecution or suffering. Believers will always do that. 
but it is a very definite commitment by the God of the universe to deliver his people from the wrath to come, a period of unprecedented uh, suffering, which comes from directly from God in order to act as judgment upon the people of the earth for rejecting Christ as Savior and embracing the false Christ. It's interesting that in 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, chapters 1 through 5, that virtually every chapter talked about delivering the saints from the wrath to come. It's a, an articular, a definite form, a definite time of wrath. And that is what identified the Great Tribulation. So it is the rapture of the church before this that is the hope and comfort of believers. Uh, so it's a very blessed hope that we have. This is one of the elements of what Paul says in Titus 2.13, the blessed hope that Christians have. I'd like to conclude, as our time is, has run by, with rehearsing the point about the fact that uh, the rapture of the church is meant to be a great encouragement and hope uh, and even victory, a time of victory for believers. Those words are in the text that we have read this afternoon, encouragement, hope, victory, and so forth. Uh, what a wonderful encouragement Christians have in the midst of uh, whatever suffering we may be going through. And you know, we, referring to Americans, uh, have little to really complain about in light of the fact that in other countries, people are being put to death or simply embracing Christ as savior and are uh, ostracized, uh, separated from their jobs, cannot get uh, food, cannot get uh, health and all other uh, needs that they may have. Uh, so it's a very uh, powerful message, meaning I would guess far more to Christians living elsewhere in the world than it does to Americans here in this country. Any final thoughts, John? No, I think that that's uh, not just an encouragement uh, to look forward to something, but I'm, I'm sitting here looking again at the uh, final verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in the vein in the Lord. I think if, there's so much news uh, now about people who have uh, uh, been beset by the uh, restrictions that have come about as a consequence of the coronavirus uh, primarily uh, from government establishing uh, the necessity to close businesses. And how many people have put uh, lifetimes of effort uh, into their businesses? And uh, it's, it, it might as well have gone up in smoke in many cases. There's all sorts of uh, uh, estimates of what percentage of small businesses will never be able to reopen and those kind of people will say, talk about uh, labor in vain, but for the believer who looks forward to uh, a new heaven, uh, a new earth, uh, reigning with Christ, even before then, uh, a new body. Well, I could use one of those, especially now. Um, yes. Just so many, so many things that we can look forward to we realize that our labors are not in vain because they're producing uh, for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison uh, with 
with what we're enduring now. So we can uh, not just sit back and wait to be um, uh, taken out of any more difficulty. We can keep busy uh, bringing people into the kingdom and encouraging the saints and helping them to grow in Christ's likeness. And the resurrection is uh, that which enables us to keep going when others might throw in the towel. Yes, and so uh, many uh, Christians who have lost their businesses or may lose them are in this category about which you just spoke. You know, I have a list here before me of our podcasts, uh, pardon me, of the episodes of our podcast. And I noticed that we began the first one on April the 1st. And now we are at uh, uh, the 22nd of May and we are in number 14. So what a wonderful experience I think we've had in going through these two months almost full of uh, various episodes dealing with apocalypses coming. The final thought that I have is this. Several weeks ago, the thought came to me in this way. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary deeds on behalf of the kingdom of Christ. Certainly yeah. we're living in extraordinary times and these should spark every one of us as professing believers to think of extraordinary deeds, efforts that we can make on behalf of God's kingdom and the return of Christ. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary deeds on behalf of Christ and the gospel. So let's with that uh, conclude this episode and we invite our people to uh, listen and to continue on and we'll be back with another one shortly we think lord willing goodbye john Lord willing. i'm looking forward to it bye-bye jim